This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! Last episode, we learned about atonement, and this idea of atonement is really at the heart of Leviticus. It's what Leviticus is all about. How do we atone for our sins, or how did the Hebrews then atone for their sins? And all pointing to the fact that, thank the good Lord, we don't have to do all of these things today because we have Jesus, who was the ultimate atonement for sin. But back in last episode, we were talking about the fact that there was this Yom Kippur, which is what the Hebrews used as their day of atonement. We learned a lot about the history of that and the why behind it. And that it, it was still their, exists today that they still do it today. And it was their day when they were purified from top to bottom, inside out of all the sins of the last year. It's the only day that the high priest could enter the most holy place. And it is also the only ritual involving the scapegoat. That little scapegoat who was sent out into the wilderness carrying the burden of their sins. Yeah. A very visual reminder of what they were doing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. In most books, good authors compel the reader to reflect, to pause, and ask, what about my life? They compel us to curiously compare the subject of the book to our own reality, to ask ourselves, Do I do that? Should I? Could I do that? Do I want that? Care about that? Believe that. In this book, the Bible, this is Bible Book Club, never is that more true. God and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles wrote thousands of words into this book. They want us to think, to believe, to have faith, and to apply what we read to our lives. If you have been with the Bible Book Club since the beginning in Genesis, you've actually heard Heather read over 80,000 words words already from just three books of the Bible. What does God want you to learn? Why did God divinely ordain that each of these words make it into this book? These are relevant questions when discussing a little known and even less understood book like Leviticus. The subject matter in Leviticus is difficult to understand and often leads to a lot of confusion. Why would the Israelites need this law? Do these laws still apply to us? How can some apply, but some don't? It's confusing. To determine whether the laws in Leviticus have value today, it is helpful to classify them. And that's what we're going to do for better understanding. So we're going to classify them into four areas, ritual laws, civil laws, health laws, and moral laws. And then we're going to look at Do they apply today or don't they? And if they apply, maybe not in ritual law, but they do in moral law. So we're going to kind of study this list of laws that we're going to read and think about why they were written and and what they mean to us. So ritual laws were precursors to the new covenant and the cross. Ritual laws no longer apply because the cleansing of people and the tabernacle and everything we read last week about atonement through sacrifice is no longer possible or necessary. The tabernacle and its predecessor, the temple, no longer exist. And by ritual laws, you mean things that were like, when you sin in this way, you have to do this way. All the rules, the physical rules of what they had to take action in 
can do. For cleansing. For cleansing, for purification. And for atonement. And for atonement. So while the ritual laws no longer apply to us today, they are educational. We learned from, from reading that last week and the weeks before. Through ritual laws, we learned much about God's holiness and the purity that his presence required. All right, next classification, civil laws were unique to Israel's priestly government. And while many of the laws still have timeless principles today, like do not beat someone to death, that is a good principle for us. That's a novel idea. (laughs) The penalties, which actually we're not going to read this episode, it's going to happen next episode or the one after, the penalties were usually death for the Israelites. And it's not the same today. It differs from nation to nation what the penalty is for murder, etc. Additionally, some of the Israelite civil laws, such as how to treat people you own or servitude, is not applicable to us in the U.S. You can't own people in most countries today. However, like I said, the principles of mercy and justice, how to treat those people you own that are outlined, um, laws to protect the weak and poor are still valuable. So we can take away principles from them. The civil laws are a mix. Some apply, some don't apply, but there are lots of good principles about how to treat other people. All right, third classification, health laws. The intent of the health laws was, of course, to protect Israel from what they didn't know. We do know today and much and common knowledge about what is not good for you has made the need for these laws obsolete. For example, you can risk eating the meat of a dead animal, but everyone knows that it's spoiled and you're probably going to get sick. So these laws have been replaced with warnings from our Food and Drug Administration and laws put in place for companies regarding their products that are ingested. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's kind of like the laws we have today. This this is just the laws that applied to them because of where they were, were culturally and what they understood or didn't understand about the world. Correct. They had no deep knowledge of science and and health for our body. So God protected them with lots. All right. The fourth classification are, is moral law. And this includes principles governing relationships, relationships with God or relationships with other people. And these, the moral laws, are the most controversial. Moral is defined as principles that govern a person's behavior. It is whatever is ethical, good, right, honest, decent, proper, and honorable. But who gets to decide what is all those things? What is right? The answer to that depends on what you believe. What or who is the ultimate source of your truth? Moral law is often termed today religious law because obeying moral laws that are not included in the laws of your country is a matter of personal choice based on what or who you believe. Does that make sense? So those are the four classifications. All right. Well, pertaining to the last one, what is your moral standard? That's the big question that's going to determine what you think about morality. There has to be an absolute standard. Without an absolute, standards are continuously rationalized and altered and morality becomes a moving target. If God is that standard, then we must recall everything we have learned from Genesis. 
Genesis to Leviticus and beyond to understand the premise for his standard and apply it to our lives. Here's what we do know, starting with season one in Bible Book Club and Genesis. When God created the world, he created order out of chaos. We've talked about this. When the fall occurred, chaos in the form of sin gained a foothold in the world. Since the fall, the enemy's goal has been to tempt mankind into greater and greater chaos. Chaos is not what God wants for his people. And his plan is to put an end to it. There is no peace in chaos. It robs our joy and it replaces it with suffering and pain. We are living in the in-between of what was paradise created by God in Genesis and what will be created by God in the future, a new heaven and a new earth. How do we find a moral standard in the in-between. That is the author's purpose for this book, the Bible. It is written to us, the people who live in the in-between. God, the prophets, Jesus, the disciples want us to think, to believe, to have faith, and to apply that faith to our lives. That's the Bible. The biblical answer to what is your moral standard if you are a Christian is this. It is to know God's word, to understand his principles, and to obey his commands. The head knowledge of God's moral standard is not However, what saves us, but it is how we honor our creator God, how we grow in Christ and how we earn a crown of righteousness in heaven. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing." If we disregard the Bible, the moral compass we create may appear logical to us, but it will never have the reference point it needs to be consistent. The result will be that we will, did you hear what Heather said? Suit our own desires and forfeit the crown or the glory that we could have given to God, our creator. Rabbi Stuart Vogel voiced the danger of creating our own morality this way. If each of us create his own meaning, we also create our own morality. I cannot believe this. For if so, what the Nazis did was not immoral because German society had accepted it. Likewise, the subjective morality of every majority culture throughout the world could validate their heinous behavior. It comes down to a very simple matter. Without God, there is no objective meaning to life, nor is there objective morality. I I do not want to live in a world where right and wrong are subjective. So powerful. All right, let's turn now. What is the purpose? 
the precept, the principle of these laws. The purpose of Leviticus is to instruct the Israelites how, air quotes here, to be holy as I am holy. He says that multiple times in Leviticus, and we've talked about that as being the overarching theme. That was a purpose for them. What is the purpose for us? In the overview of Leviticus, we discussed what Paul said in his final charge to his beloved Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so what is the purpose of Leviticus? Well, it's to be holy as I am holy and because all scripture is God breathed, then what can we learn from the moral law of Leviticus? What is the purpose for us? How can we know God and apply what we know to our lives? Here is a filter to think through as we read these laws from Leviticus. A law should be kept if its principle can be applied unless the New Testament removes the reason for the application. So in our decision process in these four classifications of laws on do they apply or don't they apply, as I mentioned in the ritual classification, it no longer applies because that was all about keeping pure got the place in the surrounding area where God dwelled. But going forward for the other three areas, do we, if we're trying to, you know, really follow God, apply those laws or not? So an example would be in this, the filter that I mentioned, an example would be the food laws we covered in Leviticus 11 about all the things that Israel's could not eat. Then we read in Acts 11 how Peter had a vision that God released them from those laws. So we have a very clear, definitive decision there. Here are the food laws in Leviticus. Then in the New Testament, Peter says, oh, you're released. You don't have to adhere to them. We've got to look at the Old and the New Testament together. We've got to look at the Old Testament laws and say, do they make sense today? And we've got to think through it. God loves us. And because he loves us, he has given us guidelines for living well. God's protective, orderly, just principles are based on the foundational principle of love. Okay, let's dig in. Chapter 17 begins with worshiping idols. I would classify these two as ritual law and moral law. It's a combination of two. The Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols, to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. Say to them, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from the people of Israel. 
Whoops, do we still have idols? Yes, we do. This was funny reading the commentaries because it was almost like, you know, you're still kind of, fir- you're still absolutely first generation people out of Egypt. And it's almost like they're out in the fields kind of hedging their bets. Yeah, I get this whole tabernacle God thing. But just to be sure, do you think we should sacrifice some animals out here to the other gods <laughs> just to make sure we're, we're covered <laughs> on both sides? It's not, of course, a golden calf this time, but goats. And the word goat is also translated as demons. Shocking that this idol problem still exists, but we must, as readers, get used to it because it's a common Old Testament temptation that is going to continue throughout the Old Testament. Well, I think idols continue even today. We're not worshiping oh. golden calves, but sometimes we worship purses and oh. The that case is of ex- me, maybe, or sometimes we worship ourselves. And we have to recognize when we have these idols in our lives, and that's where you can use what you're reading to just be convicted. Like Susan was saying in the beginning, that's why we study these words so that you know what the word is and then God can convict you. So what is God convicting you of that you are holding up as an idol today that you might just need to re-examine in your own life? It's so funny you say that because one commentary explained the temptation like this. Polytheism, that's multiple gods, was to ancient Israel what materialism is to us today, it was so much a part of the cultural air they breathed that they were very slow to turn from it. And certainly, like you said, materialism is so much a part of our cultural air. God equates idolatry in this, what we just read, to prostitution. In Israel, to prostitute oneself was to engage in sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. The metaphor compares the covenant of marriage to the covenant God has with Israel. God is clearly stating that if they worship idols, they have cheated on him and broken their covenant with him. And so, of course, there is a penalty for worshiping other gods. The question is, at the end of this law, does this law apply to us? This law, like I said, falls under two classifications. The ritual law of sacrificing no longer applies to us. The moral law, worshiping other gods, still applies. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's throughout all of the New Testament. And we know it's something we still get tempted with. All right, the next part, eating blood. The classification for this is health law, and it was a moral law. Verse 10, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain the blood out and cover it with earth because the life of every creature is its blood. That is why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. This is kind of a new concept for me. I had never caught this before. This is the third time eating blood has been prohibited in Leviticus. It is discussed in chapter three and chapter seven. The consequence is that you are cut off and God turns his face from you, which is 
kind of a really serious thing. And God gives three reasons. It said, life is in the blood and I have given it to you. In other words, all life is the Lord's. Then it said, I have given it to you to make atonement. So in other words, its purpose is for atonement. And then it said, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It is the ransom payment God is allowing to replace the blood of the person making the offering. That was a lot, I know. But there is something precious to God about blood. And to the Israelites, it was a symbol of life because if you lost your blood, you were losing your life. Well, today that's the same thing. But it is also so symbolic throughout the New Testament because it is Christ's blood that covered our sin. We studied it last episode in the atonement, the blood on the the atonement cover covered the sin of the people. It It is precious to God. So does this law apply today? As a health law, no. However, science backs it up because blood is prone to bacterial growth. Therefore, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has laws controlling producers of meat products. And the CDC issues warnings regarding eating raw blood as it is a risk for salmonella, trichinosis, E. coli, etc., etc. Would you be arrested for it? No, you would not. But you have been warned. Be ris- It's a risk. <laughs> You're going to get sick. Now, is it a moral law? In verse 17, the basic reason for prohibiting the eating of blood was that blood represented life. As a symbol of life, the shedding of blood equates to murder. And murder is prohibited because life is a God-given gift, not to be taken by man. The New Testament supports the Old Testament law in Acts 15, 29, in a letter from Paul to the Gentiles. And again, I didn't know this. This is new to me. I did never caught this before. It says in the New Testament, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Of course, that would be idol worship, ten, you know, Ten Commandment thing. From blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, you will do well to avoid these things. I think blood is still a moral issue. Okay, the next one, touching dead animals, classification, ritual, and health laws. The rules for eating animals found dead, which we learned in Leviticus 11, renders them impure. Verse 15, anyone, whether native born or foreigner, who eats anything found dead or torn by wild animals must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be ceremonially unclean until evening. Then they will be clean. But if they do not wash their clothes and bathe themselves, they will be held responsible. Okay, remember, anything dead was impure to God because death is not God. It is the opposite of God. He is life and he never intended us to, for us to even experience death. So does this apply to us today? No to the ritual law because the matter of being clean or unclean, those laws disappeared with the tabernacle and the temple. Yes, to health, but it's not a law. It's just highly recommended. I mean, even today, you know, don't, if your kids go to touch something, that no, don't touch that. <laughs> you know, disease the floor is yuck. lava. Yes. Don't touch that. So we 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 know that it's unhealthy again. We have knowledge. Okay, now we're going to pivot to the laws on moral purity and specifically sex. These laws, while obvious to us, were contrary to the practice of the day in Egypt 
and Canaan. So understand, God is pouring this into them right now because of everything they've seen in Egypt and Canaan. The Israelites were surrounded by bad examples of how to live. Where they had lived for 400 years in Egypt and where they were going to live in Canaan, the promised land, these were cultures saturated with sexual temptation. Israel must be different. So God spells out for them again how they can be holy as he is holy. And Israel also must be fruitful and multiply. That's from Genesis 1.26, way back in the beginning. Any sexual practices that challenge procreation would be prohibited. And it might be worth remembering now that this thing about Canaan and the sexual issues that were going on there goes all the way back to when we were studying Moses. Oh, we are going to soak it I mean, into not this. Moses. Not Moses. Goes all the Noah. way back to when we were studying Noah. Oh, wait till we get to it. You're going to love it. And the it. weird thing that happened in the tent with his sons and yes. grandson. Definitely a Bible bender. All right. Starting in chapter 18, these are wrong sexual relations with family. And the classification of laws would be health and moral laws. Chapter 18. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. All right. As Heather was already jumping ahead and remembering, there is a little play on words here that is a throwback reference to Genesis 9, a story about Noah. The phrase, air quotes here, to have sexual relations that she just read literally means to uncover nakedness, which can be a euphemism for sexual intercourse, especially when combined with the word approach. Now, in Genesis 9.22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. He saw, air quotes again, which is not the same as approach, air quotes. However, something happened when Ham and possibly Canaan saw Noah. Listen to season one, episode nine for all the theories on that. Whatever it was they saw, Canaan... Noah's grandson was implicated because the curse that came as a result of what he saw fell on him. Now, here we are hundreds of years later. The Israelites are being warned not to, air quotes again, approach nakedness practiced in Canaan, the land populated by Noah's grandson, Canaan, who was cursed for something to do with nakedness. God is pretty much saying, don't do anything like what Canaan did to Noah or like what his descendants living in Canaan are doing now. All right, let's look at some of these sex laws that are coming up. Note that most of these are directions given to men. However, the intent was for the protection of the women who often lived in very close quarters with extended families. So let's think about the Israelites at this time. Remember, they've left Egypt. They're living in tents. They're all together. They're really divided um, by tribes. Remember Jacob's sons by tribes. And the whole purpose was to expand your tribe. And so extended family lived with extended family. And the laws prevented male relatives from abusing their proximity to women that were not their wife. 
And thereby, it was really protecting the women from abuse because they lived in such close quarters with men who they weren't married to. Okay, so starting in verse 7. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife. Born to your father, she is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives, and that is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Okay, I tried to make sense. Like picture, how is this happening that you can't for like sexual relationships with your aunt or whatever? But remember, uh, well, it must have been happening because he felt the need to t- to exactly. say it. Exactly. Remember when back in Exodus, when God was blessing the Hebrew babies because He was growing this nation. This is still happening. So women started having children very young, and they kept having them as long as they could. There was no birth control, and they didn't want to control birth. They wanted to expand every tribe. And so you could you could have an aunt who was the same age as you. You know, you it, 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 they were it was all happening very young ages. These are very thorough instructions. Men do not have sex with any close relative, period, because ages were crossing over. Mother, father's wife, sister, father's daughter, mother's daughter, granddaughter, stepmothers, if a half-sister, aunt, paternal uncle's wife, daughter-in-law, brother's wife, a woman and her daughter or granddaughter, and a woman and her sister if both were alive. This last one may have been a prohibition of polygamy in general. The way it is written, just note that in Hebrew. In translation, it sounds as if it is just sister wives that are prohibited. The point is clear either way, though, that a second wife would likely become a rival. Hostility within the family was and is something to be avoided. Well, and we saw that in our study in Genesis that that was going on with the patriarchs. Correct. All that we just mentioned were identified as incest, even though some are not blood relatives. This is because they would have been relations that could be found within an extended family and therefore might be living together in a single house. So to them, if you are living together, it shouldn't happen. Now, do these laws apply today? Some do and some don't. Generally, in the U.S., incest laws ban intimate relations between children and parents, brothers and sisters, and grandchildren and grandparents. Some states also ban relations between aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and first cousins. Laws vary as to half and step relatives and adopted relatives. Now, 
under the classifications as a health law. These laws then and today protect the population from a host of genetic disorders common when the gene pool is reduced. Second, as a moral law, these laws also protect then and today innocent family members from being taken advantage of by providing protection. So that's the same in Leviticus's day as today. You don't want parents or grandparents abusing children and having, you know, sexual relationships with them. So again, great analysis. Now, the next five laws have an interesting association that you really only see in the Hebrew. They are all considered a misuse of what is translated in Hebrew as the seed or semen that God intended to be used to grow the nation of Israel. So that's just something to keep in mind in the backdrop. That's why they're kind of lumped together. The first one is menstrual sex. The classification for this was ritual and moral law. Verse 19, do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. We read about the details of the resulting impurity from touching the um, loss of menstrual lifeblood. Remember, it's the loss of body fluids were considered an impurity in episode eight. Not that it was wrong. Again, many of the impurities were not wrong or sin. It was just impure to God because it it represented the loss of, of body fluid. A possible reason for God's prohibition for having sex during menstruation is that it would not result in a child and was a waste of semen or the seed. Does this apply today? Well, ritual law, no, because we don't have the ritual laws anymore. Moral law, no mention of this in the New Testament. This kind of just goes away. All right, moving on to the next one, adultery. The classification here is moral only. Verse 20, do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. This is really the first mention of adultery, although it's implied in the Ten Commandments, do not covet your neighbor's wife. This also does not mean that you can have sex with an unmarried woman, and that is addressed in multiple verses in the Old Testament. We'll get to them. But Proverbs 5, 15 exhorts husbands to fidelity, period. The words, air quotes here, sexual relations that Heather just read is translated in Hebrew as sowing seed or offspring, which implies this would be a misuse of God's intention. Now, does this apply today? Yes. Because the New Testament speaks about it. First Corinthians 6, 17 says this. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This these adultery is quoted in the New Testament over a dozen times and also is a part of the Ten Commandments. So this law does apply today. Okay, child sacrifices next. And the classification for this is moral. Verse 21, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Malek, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. To give, air quotes there, has the same root as, again, seed, semen, and to sow. This is also implying that the child or seed is being diverted from the expansion of God's kingdom. So that child started as a seed. And again, God is trying to grow his kingdom and you're giving that seed or child up to something else. Now, the name Moloch has many variations. He was a God worship 
worshipped in Canaan, especially by the Ammonites, whose ancestor was Lot, way back from Genesis, through Lot's incestuous relationship with his youngest daughter. We covered this in season one, episode 19. You need to listen to that. Lots of implication still here going on in Leviticus, and it will continue. That's the reason for all the rules. Exactly. (laughs) Moloch worshipers sacrificed children by fire and they burned them. Does this apply today? Of course, this is murder. It is covered in the Ten Commandments, the New Testament, and United States law. Up next, sexual relations outside of a man and woman. The classification again for this is this is moral law. Verse 22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. All right, so what is written in the Bible is not always politically correct, and therefore it is difficult to discuss. But we cannot ignore what is written, and the book is not ours to change. God is not bound by modern man and changing cultures. Does this apply today? The New Testament reiterates this law several times. This verse that we're about to read captures the meaning and purpose behind so many of God's laws in Leviticus, not just this one. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also." Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I love this for these verses from Paul because he really points us back to something super important. Loving the Lord is really not about life on this earth. It's about the life to come. And we are all tempted, every one of us, in many different ways. And the point is, if we are one with him and we want to be one with him, then we have to set aside those temptations. And it's so hard. It's so difficult. Um, but God does not judge us for being being tempted it's the act it's acting on the temptation and we we were born in the in between remember and in the in between there is chaos and there is temptation and we all have it in different ways the point is to remember that like the israelites god has called us to be set apart and we want to honor him and love him in that and that means turning from whatever tempts us and and loving in a new way and so um in all these verses, you know, looking at 
who we are and what we are, that we're new people and leaving behind temptation is is the way that we become more like God. And it's a struggle. It's just hard. It's really hard. Um, but it's the hope that we have is is it that through the Holy Spirit, he can he can do that. And that's the struggle, I think, with so many of these laws. Okay, the next one is sexual relations with animals. Again, classification, of course, this is a moral law. Verse 23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. I think it's curious that this one adds the woman. So obviously this was happening. This one, however, is not just for women. The men is being implied as the other laws had in the sexual relations trans. So just, you know, it's both men and women. Does this apply today? This was interesting to me. Currently, all but four states in the in, in the U.S. of A, Wyoming, West Virginia, New Mexico, and Hawaii, have criminal statutes against bestiality. These statutes make those convicted of the offense guilty of either a misdemeanor or felony, depending on both the state and the severity of the crime. Enough said on that. This is still this does still apply to us today. It is what the Lord says. A perversion. God's final words to us on what will happen if the Israelites do not obey. Verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you." Everyone who keeps any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of these detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord, your God. From Genesis through Exodus to Leviticus, God has been revealing his plan for man to us. We have learned from the beginning in Genesis that God is a God of order. He created the order of the world out of chaos. We lost that perfection and live in a world where there's tension between order and chaos. One day, God will restore us to order. One day, there will be no more thought given to, is this holy or unholy, right or wrong? All that is not of God will be gone. Until then, living in the in-between, how do we find a moral standard in the in-between? That is the author's purpose for this book, the Bible. It is our instruction book. God, the prophets, Jesus, the disciples, all the authors of the Bible want us to think, to believe, to have faith and to apply that faith to our lives. The biblical answer to what is your moral standard if you are a Christian is this. It is to know God's word, to understand his principles, and to obey his commands. 
Next episode, we will read the most important verse to me, my personal opinion, that I mentioned in the overview way back in episode one of Leviticus, the season. To tie this episode to the next episode, we will close with this verse from Paul in Romans 13. It's about how love fulfills the law. Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.